street drinkers have their own ethics, and there is a camaraderie in the absolutely downtrodden. This is a story about friendships and survival in the world of the destitute. It's also a fond tribute to memories of Deptford in London. Frida and Hamish bury Nigel. Frida sat on the creepy, crawly couch, staring out of the broken window pane at the grey skies of Deptford. She sipped slowly from a can of Tennant's super, her third of the day. Mildred the cat sat on her lap, and she stroked the fourteen-year-old feline absent-mindedly. Mildred had accompanied her on her journeys down and out and half back in again, never complaining about changes of circumstance and always hanging on for a scrap of food here and there. Mildred was thin, but not as thin as she was. Food didn't interest Frida any more. A diet of strong lager kept her alive, and because she paid no rent and had no gas or electricity connected, she was able to spend all of her benefit money, the universal credit and the standard daily living rate of personal independence payments, on alcohol. Nectar of the gods, acid of damnation, gateway to oblivion, whatever you wanted to call it, she was so dependent now that no dire health warnings or moralising could reach her. The one drawback of being drunk all the time, she thought, was that getting really pissed was a distant memory. Frida lived in a not-quite-relationship kind of way with Hamish, who was currently out on his daily mission to keep them supplied. Hamish was willing to walk long distances so that they were able to vary the establishments that sold them the tenants, thus ensuring that they were never barred for being too needy, too smelly, too drunk or too rowdy. Hamish was due back at any moment, but Frida wasn't fretting. He liked to amble along the byways of Deptford, New Cross and Brockley, even if he was lugging cans of drink in his satchel. Hamish was a big bear of a man, and an almost absolute deficiency of nutrition had not withered him in the same way that it had Frida. She loved Hamish, possibly. Life did not require such declarations, but they hovered hazily at the back of her brain, ready perhaps to be blurted out, should they ever be called for. Frida had perfected the art of sipping slowly. Although she was on the last can in the house, she was not anxious. Yes, you always needed to be able to identify the next drink, but she felt confident that it was on its way, and that, even if it was severely delayed, she could make this can last for another two hours at a push. It was a life with relatively few stresses. When the crises came, of course, they were large and overwhelming, but at least in the last ten years or so they had been far and few between. Frida brought to her mind her earlier self, the successful one, the one with the husband, the child, and the house in Strawberry Hill. And the job, of course, must not forget the job selling commercial property in the heyday of the late 1980s. The world had been at her feet, and so had the drugs, and the men, and eventually just the drink. Frida had fallen and fallen hard. Perhaps there was something wrong with her, in that she didn't regret her headlong plunge down the social scale to the life of the street. And all the things she had lost, she really didn't, hand on heart, miss any of them. Definitely not the husband, who was a boor, 
and she couldn't remember why they had got together in the first place. She had thought she needed a husband, she supposed, in the same way that she had needed a car, or an investment portfolio, or a goldfish. The only possible cause for regret was that her son had no interest in reconnecting. She had tried. A long time ago now, mind you. She had reached out, as they say, but to no avail. She was a disgrace, a pariah. Well, so be it. Money, when you first try to do without it, savages you with its absence. But very gradually you adjust. You stop needing things. You stop needing the expensive padding of the modern world. You do need water, however, and they made sure she and Hamish always to pay the water rates. She was a slowly dying chronic alcoholic with bad teeth for sure, but she was a relatively clean one. The worst times had been when she was homeless. Then the casual beatings and the slobbering sexual assaults had been vile, unendurable, though endure them she had. She found herself trapped in a nest of street drinkers who were vicious and sadistic. The only reason for staying in that group was access to the shared booze. The idealism sounded great on the surface, but commitment to communal life was a cover for brutal exploitation and a dog-eat-dog existence. A bit like being an estate agent, she thought, with a wry smile. But if it hadn't been for Hamish and Nigel, she might still be there, or, very probably, dead. They, too, had been part of the group, but they were also disillusioned by everything about it. Hamish and Nigel had intervened when a particularly ugly group assault scenario was developing. And that was it, the moment of crisis that forced real change, because at that moment they decided together that they had to leave, though of course they were also expelled. And so they staggered off with no plans and no resources, but with a renewed sense of dignity. For weeks they were clueless, and it seemed as if they had made the wrong call, were it not for the growing bond between them. But eventually their luck turned, and word of a house in Deptford filtered through. They'd never known exactly who owned this house. The council had never tried to have them evicted as squatters, and no private landlord had ever turned up to demand rent or to forcibly eject them back onto the street. You could see why. The house itself was in a terrible state of repair. There were holes in the roof, holes in the ceilings, holes in the holes themselves. It was freezing in the winter, and a haven for fruit flies and wasps in the summer. And yet... It served its purpose. The impermanence had become permanent. A brittle barrier against catastrophe had stood, and it sheltered them still. Two years ago, Nigel had collapsed in the kitchen, opening a tin of cat food for Mildred. He'd been taken to hospital and then moved into a residential care home in Lewisham. Hamish was far better at keeping up the visits than she was. She didn't like to leave the house, but Hamish would call in to see Nigel, or what was left of him, on as regular a basis as his level of inebriation would let him. To get over the threshold, he had to satisfy the matron that he was in a fit state to do so. It wasn't always the case that he was, and so half the time he was turned away from catching up with his old friend. Frida had never quite fathomed Nigel. His past had remained murky even when he had explained it in great detail. 
Something about losing a fortune at poker and avoiding homicidal loan sharks by hiding in Epping Forest for a decade. Whatever his previous history was, he had succumbed, like she and Hamish had, to the lure of the demon drink. Nigel used to pretend that each new can of super was in fact a bottle of vintage wine. He joked about bouquet and terroir and the length of the finish before slugging away and crushing the can in his fist. But his body had floored him. Now he was confined to a wheelchair and was doubly incontinent. Hamish said that he was still fairly chipper given the circumstances, but it was hard to imagine. Poor bastard. Frida continued to mull over thoughts and words and deeds and what she had left undone. As the grey sky deepened from ash to charcoal, Hamish's familiar struggle with the mortise lock betrayed his impending arrival. He galumphed into the living room and flopped down beside her on the creepy crawly couch, then reached into the bag he was carrying and opened them both fresh cans of the elixir of death. He's gone? Who? Nigel? What do you mean? He's dead? No. As a doornail. I'm sorry. They sat drinking. Every few minutes, Hamish sighed. An overproof tear ran down his cheek, and Frida took his big paw in her small hand. The silence was cathartic. When Hamish spoke again, it felt like an age had passed. The home will sort out the funeral, pay for a headstone. He didn't want the burning, you know, cremation. Said he was afraid he'd feel it. Idiot. They laughed. But a funeral was serious business. They'd have to be well presented. They'd have to be nearly sober. A tall order all round. Hamish washed his least-stained jacket and her least-tattered dress in the bath with fairy liquid. They took two days to dry out properly. Frida passed up the opportunity to go and see Nigel laid out at the undertaker's. She had never understood the point of saying goodbye to a corpse. Nigel was long gone. He'd been long gone before he was finally gone anyway. No gaze of hers upon the face of absence would comfort or cajole. The day of the funeral was cold and sharp. They took the bus to St Andrew's Church. There was a black hearse parked outside with a cardboard coffin in the car's glass shell. The undertaker and his assistant made serious noises at them as they passed. The church was empty, save for the priest, or minister, or clergyman, or whatever he called himself. He beckoned them forward to the front row. "'It is my understanding that we are the only mourners,' he said solemnly. "'However, I have made the necessary arrangements for your friend to be buried in the small graveyard behind the church. A rare dispensation.' Nigel had started taking the sacrament again in the nursing home before he died. "'I would urge you to follow his example.' Frida and Hamish sat in the pew as directed. It was his only access to alcohol of any kind, he whispered in her ear. Frida smiled. Ah, yes, the blood of Christ, the wine of life. What followed was as dull as church had always been for Frida. The creaking seats, the procession of the coffin, the organ blast, the prayers and the clipped comments about Nigel, all of them faded eventually into whitewashed walls. Religion, she thought, is just an exhalation of air, absorbed effortlessly by the hard reality of stone. 
When the service was done, they padded obediently from the church and took up their places by the open grave and waited for the undertakers to lower the body of Nigel, resplendent in his cheap, rapidly biodegradable container, to his last resting place. One last theatrical dust-to-dust from the man in white, and it was all over. Frida and Hamish waited. The priest said a frosty goodbye. The undertakers shook their hands and then departed. Ten minutes later, a man smoking a cigarette and with a shovel over his shoulder sauntered across to them and began to fill in the hole in the ground. Nigel's brief candle was out. The headstone simply gave the name and the dates. That was something, thought Frida. No grandiose biblical quotations, at least. Finally, they partook of a further small and private ceremony. This was of Hamish's devising, and Frida approved wholeheartedly. Hamish pulled from his pocket two cans of what for them was a genuinely sacred brew, and together, with great deliberation, they poured the contents over the grave. Only then could it be said that Frida and Hamish had properly buried Nigel. Thank you.